You're listening to the Young Turks about maggotards making bomb threats to children's hospitals because they're told by their churches. So there, there isn't any hysterectomies going on. The hospital, the doctors, changes. Uh, the parents, everyone swears up and down. Swears up and down. It never happened. It isn't happening. Fucking okay, Trump uppers sack the church. But the Sun Cross come out and show them and say, oh, our bad. It turns out the hospital's not doing it. And he, he, not only does he not say that, he says they're mutilating the children. They're, they're chopping them up. <clears throat> And he makes it in the most emotionally charged way so that somebody will, quote unquote, do something. So, hey, look at that. It turns out right-wingers went to go do something about it, including calling it a bomb threat. Well, think about it. It's a children's hospital. There's sick kids in there. Even if you don't care about doctors or nurses, and these days Republicans are like, doctors, we don't believe any of them. They keep saying that there's a pandemic. And then vaccines work. We hate goddamn doctors. Nurses go on strike. They should be made to work nonstop like the goddamn teachers. I know you hate everybody. I got it. I got it. But, all right, so even if you get past that, how about the kids? You pretend that you care about the kids. There's sick kids inside the hospital, right? And if you don't bother, you have to take the kids out. What if they're on a ventilator? What if they need uh, around-the-clock treatment? And now you're going to move everybody to the hospital because you are so stupid you believe a guy like Tucker Carlson. Okay, stop being stupid. And turn into trying different kinds of media. I know corporate media lies in its own way, right? But try to get some sort of real facts in your life and stop violently attacking the rest of us. And yes, this is a form of violence. I'm super glad she was arrested. It's fucking terrorism. And she should do real time in jail. Yeah, and look, I, fucking terrorism. I think everyone in the country at this point, because of the way things are set up algor- with the algorithms, everyone lives in their own political filter bubble where they're never presented a, a different opinion. And if they're ever presented a different opinion, they have such a weird reaction to it. Like the vitriol and the backlash is pretty incredible. I do want to provide you one example because Matt Walsh happens to be one of the individuals out there who's been spreading lies about children's uh, Boston's children's hospital, children's hospital. And uh, it, it has very real consequences because as the Daily Beast notes, uh, the hospital has so far received well over a dozen distinct threats, FBI special agent in charge Joseph Bono Volanta told reporters, adding that the matter is being treated as a top priority. With that said, here's a look at what leads to the kind of threats that these people are dealing with. Today on the Matt Wall Show, children's hospitals around the country are butchering, mutilating, and sterilizing their young patients. According to Boston Children's Hospital, Literally every toddler who has ever been born or will ever be born is trans. Now, if it seems like they're casting the widest imaginable net in order to catch the most children they can and put them all on a path to sterilization and butchery before they can even talk. Inciting violence. Well, that's because that's exactly what these monsters are doing. And they've done it up until this moment without much resistance from the public. That has to end. Yeah, you have to resist. We have to stop making it so easy on them. Go fuck yourself. And that's why I'm in the very early stages of trying to organize a national coordinated effort to fight back against this evil. Yeah, you're. It's really just a matter of where do we begin? Maybe we begin at Boston Children's Hospital. Go fuck yourself, by the way. Wow. I mean, look. 
I try to be as understanding as possible, knowing what our media landscape is like, knowing what algorithms oh, do, knowing that people exist in their own filter bubbles. So I don't like to be overly critical to toward people that. because propaganda is a hell of a drug. But how does anyone listen to that segment and believe what Matt Walsh is saying? How do you listen to that and actually think it's true? Like, there really, there isn't a moment in your mind where you might question the accuracy of what he's saying. I mean, and Jake, like, you and I talk about this all the time. I'm actually going to bring a part of that conversation public right now. We might be the only show in the country where the audience is, like, ready to call us out. Like, the audience is ready to question the accuracy of what we're saying. And by the way, I wouldn't have it any other way. But we're literally the only ones. Everyone else has an audience that's like, yes, yes, yes. What you say is 100% true. I'm just going to believe it. I'm going to take it at face value. That is insane. Like, I don't get it. I don't get it. How do you listen to that and think, yeah, yeah, nailed it. That must be true. Yeah, that's that's exactly what's happening at, at Boston's Children's Hospital. Yeah, I mean, uh, our audience questions us uh, from time to time. You know why? Because we encourage them to. Uh, we say, hey, listen. To make sure you're getting facts, make sure you're getting uh, opinions from different sources, uh, and 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 have an independent judgment for yourself. And by the way, we also talk about how uh, preset ideologies are not necessarily the correct solution. Uh, Eighty years later, after they were said, whether they're from the left or the right, etc. So we try to cultivate open-minded audience, and we get an open-minded audience, right? But the rest of media doesn't do that, including right. Corporate media says, okay, no, this is what you need. I mean, we just did a story about it earlier uh, in this show where CNN and every corporate media outlet is saying, hey, there's might be a strike of railroad workers, and every one of them frames it as, I can't believe the railroad workers are going to do this to America, right? None of them frame it as, I can't believe the railroad companies are going to do this to America by not sharing 3.5% of their profits with the workers, right? So it's all the framing. When it comes to corporate media, mainstream media, yeah. when it comes to right-wing media, well, they own all well look, they media. prey on, on, on you, you know, people who are more gullible. Uh, they got to sell that Insta heart. And, and I'm not joking. Like the con men look for the easiest marks. Oh, and the right-wing historically in this country five has been down. the easiest mark. It's not an accident that almost five all the con men are on their side. Media. So, look, our politicians are, you know, are pretty obvious themselves they take corporate money and they do whatever their donors tell them even though the lying media tells you oh no no they're having honest debates but when, when you have a criminal con man like donald trump he's not going to go to the left if the left is where the suckers were he'd go to the left when you have uh, an outlet like fox News that just wants to uh, you know brainwash people with obvious absurd lies for profit they're not going to go to the left they're going to go to the right because it's easier marks. So, I mean, Anna, how many times have we heard a story in a production meeting yeah, that was seems to favor our side? And, and we go, you guys sure? Because that's right. not much, right? And then we then look into it and we research it, etc. right? That, whereas Fox News sees and, and, and Daily Wire and all these guys, they, they come up with the most ridiculous lies that a child could tell isn't true. Really? At Boston Children's Hospital, they think every kid is trans. And, and then they're taking these kids and they're mutilating them and chopping them up. They're doing it to every kid. Like, you really have to be. You're, God. Okay. I mean, I look. Say it, but you're really, you get, you're the marks. You're the well, suckers at the table. That. That's why con men who are obvious liars like Matt Walsh were the most obvious, dumbest liars in American media can trick people. That's super sad. 
Also, just follow the logic of what he's saying, right? So, oh my God, they're brutalizing these children. We must do something. So what, like bomb the hospital? What happens to the children in the children's hospital then? And, and by the way, like, I don't mean to open this up because I know it's a heated debate and I really don't feel like engaging in that debate. But if you want to talk about genital mutilation, I mean, it, it does circumcision count or is circumcision okay because it's a religious thing for most people, not everyone. Some people do it for whatever. Um, it's cleaner, safer, whatever they think it is. Uh, but it's just amazing how genital mutilation in some cases totally fine. General mutilation in their minds, in the case of someone who identifies as trans, not okay. We must bomb the hospital. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Anna, you're 100% right. And then I got to say two things about that. If we did the same thing and we said, hey, you know, there's this hospital, it's a Catholic hospital or, or some sort of a religious hospital, and they're chopping up little kids' body parts and doing general mutilation, this thing they call circumcision. Well, it's technically true. They are, do, you know, all those hospitals do do circumcision. You could frame it as general mutilation. I wouldn't frame it that way, but you could. And then they are chopping things, right? And so we could say it that way. Like, oh, isn't somebody going to do anything about it? They think all the kids should be chopped up. And they're chopping them up right now. Like, we would never do that because we're not outrageous liars who are trying to provoke violence like Matt Walsh is. So he knows that they're not doing it to all the kids. He knows they're not doing it to any of the kids. And so they're just more immoral than we are. They have no morality. They're evil people. People like Matt Walsh. They're disgusting sickos. And they and their side is more prone to violence. They know that. So they want to egg it on. Because they think, well, we can't win with ideas because we're idiots. So we have to lie and we have to provoke violence in order to win. That's our dumb people through violence. So that's, that's what he wants. And that's what he's getting. So we would never do that to them because we are moral human beings unlike they are. All right, we got to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we have more news for you, including one of the most entitled cops. And that's really saying something so entitled that she felt the need to put an insane rant on social media. Later, she took it down after there was backlash. But we've got a copy of it. That and more coming up in the second hour. Yes, be actual software. Mom was a one, dad was a zero. And my job is to help growing businesses find and keep great. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to the Christopher Gabonetta Show. And shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University of Aridstone in Two Stones. And <clears throat> please wear a mask in public indoor spaces. And call out three branches of government, especially the Doge, and make sure that they, number one, disqualify Trump and the insurrectionists from holding public office under the 14th Amendment, okay? So call all three branches of government and tell them about that. Remind them that. And uh, also tell Biden 202-456-1111 to, um... 
uh, call all six justices of the Supreme Court and demand their resignations for having lied, lied, uh, charge them with fucking perjury. They said it was settled, settled law. So yeah, nail him. He can, and he can remove governors. Have him, uh, tell him to remove governor, uh, Governor Abbott and DeSantis for human trafficking. Fuck him, as Tony and Michael says. If you like more, my this podcast, you'll enjoy my other ones. Pro Democracy Podcasts all the way. Lincoln Project, Midas Touch. Welcome to TYT. I'm your host, Anna Mary Trump. And we have a gigantic, awesome show ahead for you, including an interview today with Jason Miles, who is the co-host of the This Is Revolution podcast. I wanted to have him come on because of his personal experiences uh, dealing with um, various methods to help with the drug addiction epidemic that we're seeing in the country. Uh, He has worked in the area of harm reduction, and I think that that perspective is incredibly invaluable. So we'll have him on the show in the first hour to discuss his personal experiences and his thoughts on what we can do as members of the left to help get the country out of the situation it's currently grappling with. Uh, The opioid epidemic, of course, continues. Now we have around 100,000 people dying of drug overdoses per year. So it's an important topic, and I really want to explore it more. We will be doing that in the first hour. Later in the show, uh, we're also going to have John Iverola join us for a fun second half, and we'll uh, discuss some uh, lighter stories for sure, fun stories. I'm sure John will have some thoughts on what's uh, going on in the world of fantasy content, including uh, House of the Dragon. Uh, dragons because that show and I was a little worried it was gonna suck but I watched it uh, and I'm already three episodes in love it couldn't recommend it more so we'll talk about that more uh, in the second half of the show Um, but before we get started I I wanted to encourage you guys to like and share the stream Uh, I think it's an easy way to help support the show and support the message and you should also become a member because in the members only bonus episode today My husband, who was a former professional baseball player, will be joining us to talk about the fact that the minor league has now joined the MLB union, which is long overdue. This is really, really good news. And so he's going to come on to talk about his personal experiences um, in the minor leagues and what it was like, uh, because I don't think a lot of people understand, even in the minor leagues, you, you, you don't. You don't get paid much, and the conditions aren't so great, and so unionizing will help um, at least start to address some of those issues. Uh, Speaking of labor, by the way, we're going to begin with a story to update you on the rail strike, so let's get right to it. We're not asking for the world here. We're asking for a few days off a month to spend with our family instead of living on a train. We spend... 240 to 260 hours a month sitting on these trains or sitting at the hotel rooms away from our families. I love how shocked and surprised conservative hosts are when they hear from workers who are about to strike because they don't have great working conditions, but more importantly, they don't get paid time off. And in this case, they were specifically speaking to a rail worker, and uh, there's good reason for having this discussion. We got to keep in mind that rail workers are planning on striking. 
as soon as Friday of this week. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. But just to break down that video even further, the whole point of that conversation was to bring up the fact that the rail workers, railroad workers, are not willing to accept what the terms of the latest negotiation with their employers have been. There are uh, 12 major railroad companies that are... um, about to lose workers to a strike later this week because they're unwilling uh, to change the fact that they aren't giving these workers enough time off to deal with illnesses, family emergencies. I'm going to give you the details to all of that in just a moment, but I do think it's important to watch the rest of that Newsmax video. So let's take a look. We did reach out to the Association of American Railroads, and they say that workers get sick days and paid time off. Whoever told you we get sick days, our sick days is manipulating the data. We get paid time off that we earned the previous year before. Before the new policy came about, we were allowed to take five days off and two weekend days off a month. Now we could take virtually one day unpaid off a month. And then the only other time we could take off is our paid time that we had to earn the previous year. Yeah, that does seem ridiculous. They would never let airline pilots do that. Um, is, that exactly. issue, is that issue number one? Airline um, pilots are also underpaid. So here's an update on what's currently happening with the railroad workers their employers and where the current negotiations are at. As we've shared on the show before, railroad workers have been threatening to strike and the White House actually intervened to prevent that strike from happening. And the reason why the Biden administration would want to intervene is because, of course, railroad workers striking would be a massive disruption to the economy. And that kind of disruption, especially so close to the midterms, would be a disaster for the Democrats since they're in charge right now. Now, as I mentioned, the railroad workers are potentially going to strike later this week unless Congress gets involved and basically prevents them from doing it. But before I give you the details to that, let me give you the details on the terms of the negotiation that the railroad workers have rejected. So um, the, the... negotiations did lead to a proposed pay increase, which is pretty significant, right? Now, that's not enough, though, because these are individuals who are working incredibly long hours. Oftentimes, they don't see their own family members for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so they want to be able to spend more time with their families, which is understandable. They want time off in case they are sick. And unfortunately, right now, they only get one day in some of these uh, railroad companies, right? The workers get maybe one day off per week for, let's say, an emergency or an illness. And clearly, that's not enough, right? And so if the strike happens, as I mentioned, it could have major ramifications for the economy. The Biden administration has been pretty aggressive in trying to uh, do something about inflation. And as recent reports indicate, inflation is still very much a problem. I think that there are multiple factors that are leading to inflation in different sectors of the economy. We've talked about that before. Uh, But I do want to mention that um, if a negotiation has not been reached by Friday, they will strike. After that, those unions can legally strike, a move that could drive transportation costs higher, stall commutes and gum up shipments of coal, chemicals, cars, and grain, and cost $2 billion a day by one estimate. Okay, so again, those are the ramifications for the economy, which 
This is where workers' power really lies. When they're able to bring companies to their knees by doing a strike like this. Now, um, how much will this have a toll on the economy? Well, depending on how you want to measure it, the railroads at some point touch between about a third to about 45% of all freight in the U.S. at some point or another. Okay, so let's pause for a second. That's a quote from Jason Miller, who's a professor over at Michigan State University. If you know that the nation's economy literally relies on these workers. There are as many as 100,000 rail workers involved here, right? Just give them more time off. As as far as I understand it, by the way, they're not even asking for more paid time off per month to deal with family emergencies or sicknesses. They just want more unpaid time off, meaning workers have been retaliated against if they need to take more time off, unpaid, which is crazy. because this is essentially the industry trying to encourage Congress to step in and essentially prevent the strikers from being able to strike. And there is precedent for that. Now, the association estimated that it would take 467,000 long-haul trucks daily to haul what the railroads do. There simply aren't enough trucks or truck drivers to handle that volume, it said in the report. And that I do believe. Uh, As we know, there was already an issue with a shortage of truck drivers. And so the idea that uh, truckers can fill that gap left behind by striking railroad workers is insane. And I would probably venture to say that some of the truckers probably wouldn't want to, uh, you know, go against the striking workers and and fill the so-called gaps. Uh, Now... Again, that responsibility to fill the gaps would fall on the truckers. Now, why haven't the railroad companies uh, been able to reach this deal? Again, the main issue was leave, and uh, they've already agreed on the percentage increase in pay. So in July, President Joe Biden intervened to avert a strike, naming a panel of arbitrators to mediate the contract disputes. The panel last month issued a 124-page report recommending a 24% pay increase, sounds pretty good, and bonuses through 2024, along with back pay through much of 2020. Now, that satisfied the railroads and has tentatively been good enough for 10 out of the 12 labor unions. But the two labor unions uh, that have decided, no, we're going to reject this, are specifically calling on more time off, okay? So the remaining holdouts 
the brother of locomotive engineers and trainmen, and the International Association of Steel, Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers account for well above half the rail labor force. They say they want any agreement to address what they say are strict attendance, sick, and time off policies. That's all it takes at this point. So, um, basically, the three out of the 12 unions representing these workers have already voted in favor of doing this strike by the end of the week. Again, the only thing that the employers need to do is agree to provide more time off for these workers so they can deal with life something that we all have to deal with, right? So I think it's totally reasonable. Um, and so uh, I, I should note that the two remaining holdouts when it comes to the uh, negotiations so far were the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen and the Inter International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. They account for well above half of the rail labor force. They say they want any agreement to address what they say are strict attendance, sick, and time off policies. And again, incredibly reasonable. And instead of just, just providing this one final demand to the workers, who, by the way, without those workers, economy goes to crap. Without those workers, no revenue, okay, for the employers here. All they need to do is the bare minimum. They've already agreed to the pay increase of 24%. Uh, they've already agreed to back pay. Just give them the time off that they need. And uh, instead of doing that so far, by the way, uh, we're hearing that they're hoping that Congress will intervene and essentially prevent these workers from striking. Um, they're trying to force congressional intervention. Analysts over at J.P. Morgan are, are telling investors, now's a great time to invest in uh, railroad companies because there's no way Congress won't intervene. And it gives you a sense of what Congress is really meant for in neoliberal politics. In neoliberalism, the government isn't there to protect you, the worker. The government is there to protect corporate interests. And that's what we see play out over and over again. And while the Biden administration really wants to position itself as, you know, a pro-labor administration, and to be sure, to be fair, Biden and his NLRB have certainly been better than administrations in recent decades, which isn't saying much, it's a low bar. I would have liked to see the Biden administration actually apply the pressure to the railroad companies to ensure that these workers get the time off that they need. Okay, that's what's important to do here. And as I mentioned earlier, there is precedent for Congress uh, stepping in. So the June 1992 railroad strike lasted for two days before Congress passed a bill banning strikes and walkouts. Uh, that was signed by George H.W. Bush at the time. Uh, and then you have lawmakers who have used the uh, Railway Labor Act of 1926 to intervene at least 11 times since 1963. So again, it's not unprecedented for Congress to get involved, but I would really like to see Democrats put their money where their mouth is. They love to campaign on supporting the workers and doing right by them. How about you actually put those words into action and instead of intervening to prevent the strike from happening, you apply pressure to the employers to agree to this one final thing, which I know this is like the billionth time I've said it, is incredibly reasonable. All right.
We got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to have an excellent interview. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Jason Miles, co-host of the This Is Revolution podcast, will be joining us to talk about the opioid epidemic and what we can do in terms of harm production, how we can rethink, you know, battling this devastating problem that we're seeing uh, all across the country. Mm -hmm. Don't miss it. We'll be right back. Yeah. Decriminalize it. Make it so that anybody can get free uh, rehab. Hi, I'm Bamboo HR. Yes, actual software. Free and anonymous. I mean, like, yeah. Check yourself in. That's a good way to get people up the street. Make it free to check yourself into a rehab. <laughs> People will help you get you on your feet. There's like millions of, of uh, vacant, vacant uh, uh, homes, accommodation. Do, do you get, um, you know, make make it an incentive? Welcome back to TYT. I'm your host, Anna Kasparian, and we have a fantastic guest government and important conversation up next. Joining us now is the host of the This Is Revolution podcast, Jason Miles. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is cool. So, Jason, I've been meaning to talk to you about your experience with safe injection sites, with harm reduction policies, because clearly the way this country has dealt with the opioid epidemic, with people who are addicted to drugs, the fact that we've decided to criminalize them for so long has been so destructive. And we're starting to see a different approach in some parts of the country, California being one of them, where the focus has kind of shifted toward the idea of harm reduction instead of criminalization and prosecution. And you had called into the majority report back in February, and you just kind of wanted to share your perspective. I thought what you had to say was really interesting, and I wanted to kind of make space for you to elaborate on your thoughts a little more uh, today. So first, let me just kind of set this up, give the audience some context. What have your experiences been in this space, in this area, uh, dealing with drug addiction? Uh, I myself have never uh, touched drugs or drink, drank, but uh, drug addiction is pretty deep in my family uh, as far as growing up with an addict. Um, and I've faced homelessness. I actually was homeless for a while. And then uh, kind of the only thing that saved me from it was recently moving down here uh, to Mexico where I live now. It was the only place I could afford. Um, and I lived and worked with the unhoused for, for quite some time uh, in what would be known as a wet facility or a facility where people actually can use drugs. Um, you're not going to lose your, your housing uh, uh, for drug use. 
and I had to work uh, hand in hand with the position that I had actually with a company, an organization called Epac. I shouldn't say company, it's an organization that actually hands out um, um, needles. And I think when people think about uh, safe injection sites, or when they think about uh, even wet facilities like the like the one I was in. Um, it always becomes, uh, it, it's either a, I don't want it next to me kind of issue, um, or, and, and that turns into I don't want it at all, sadly, or we need to have more of these things, um, but silently I don't want it next to me. Because, Interesting. Because one of, one of the things is, and, and I can give Oakland as a, as a perfect example, uh, East Oakland, um, if you're familiar with uh, the Oakland Raiders, we're now in Las Vegas, and the Golden State Warriors, who are now in San Francisco, uh, they vacated a very large facility that now only the Oakland A's have. And uh, you probably have seen, if you guys know you guys do a sports show, the attendance is extremely low. Uh, sometimes there's less people there that are there for a high school football game. And a lot of that has to do with the deterioration that happened around that area, especially when those teams left, and the little bits of business that were there left as well. So there were hotels there because it's actually right next to the airport. It's kind of a perfect location for a sports team. Um, you have freeway access, literally exits right into the parking lot. You have public transportation access. We have a, a subway system in the Bay, Bay Area called the BART Bay Area Rapid Transit that lets you off right at the stadium. Um, but they we had a Walmart leave. I don't ran. know too many people that know what it's like when a Walmart actually vacates an area. It actually leaves a really large hole. And there was a, there's been a fight around who's going to use that building between the county and the city. And you, and you create this environment where you have a lot of people that are also losing housing that got ramped up during COVID. So these hotels that were left there, um, and what I think is kind of a, a great strategy, uh, first step strategy in handling our homeless problem is single room occupancy, especially with these mm -hmm. or SROs, you might hear people say that. And so we had a lot of emergency facilities that were, that were started up instantly. But some hotels didn't buy in. They just didn't want it. Um, and what then happened around those areas, because you had such a, a large influx of homeless people, um, is kind of and this wasn't part of the plan, of course, you build almost a hell zone in this area because it's an anything goes space. There's drug use, there's prostitution, there's tons of violence, and it's all gonna happen in this space. Okay, let me let me pause you for one second. Um, because you're touching on something, obviously it's, it's uncomfortable to talk about, right? Because on one hand, you want to house people, you want to get them off the streets. Like to me, that's the number one priority because if they're on the streets, it's dangerous. I mean, if you look at the homicides in Los Angeles, for instance, the individuals who are overwhelmingly represented, um, overrepresented in the uh, homicide statistics are, are the unhoused. So you want to get them in housing, but there is an issue with some of these public housing solutions, even if it's temporary housing, if they have the very strict rules on drug use, for instance, well, then you're going to deny people a roof over their heads, and it seems incredibly cruel, but I feel like there's also some downsides of not having any rules, uh, and you're kind of touching on that right now, and it's, it's really hard to hear it. 
Um, but the thing that people forget about, because I used to be 100% against any rules. It's like, just get people housed. Um, but a woman yeah. actually reached out to me who used to be unhoused because oh she God. left her abusive husband with her kids. And she didn't want to be in an environment where she and her kids had to deal with some of the things that you're describing right now. Uh, I, so I, it's a complicated and nuanced issue, but I, I wanted I, you to continue. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. I, I, have, I have a few anecdotes, and I hope we have time for them. I'll, I'll try to be brief. Sure. Um, and if we can come back, oh. I can talk more about the idea of accidentally creating a hell zone, because I, I think none of us want that, right? right? And one of the things that I tried to do uh, in my position in the facility was reimagine the way we, we, we have these facilities, and it's very hard. So first of all, what I wanted to do was make it what? kind of an oasis. So mm -hmm. I called all of the why people you, that I knew. Why don't you just look at the, the Scandinavian models of, of prison reform? Um, and, and also I had to get as many people on board working there as well because you're trying to reinvent. You don't have to invent the wheel, my friend. What, what it ends up becoming is warehouses. Look at other countries. And, and I think that, a lot of people don't has, want to see it that way because they want to assume that once you throw someone in a house, they're be grateful. So that also flattens the way we see homelessness and, and, and the people that are, that are unhoused. And, and my big issue with that is if you really want to combat this, you have to accept the fact that not everybody is going to be the perfect homeless person. There's going to be real criminals in here. There's going to be uh, pederasts in here. There's going to be rapists and murderers in there. Uh, actually, my managers of the facility were literally murderers that had, that had turned their lives around. So you have to understand that the population that you're dealing with oh. isn't all um, kind of idealistic, right? Um, and it's going to get ugly, some of the things that you're going to see. And, and I want to give a quick anecdote. Um, there was a woman that came in with her boyfriend. And at some point, uh, the boyfriend had became abusive. Now, we don't know about anyone's spousal abuse problems. There is no knocks on doors and asking, how's the relationship going? And a lot of services weren't provided. People came to me all the time and asked for drug treatment service. Like, hey, can we have an AA meeting? And there's certain rules about having AA meetings. And another thing people have to understand is most of these things are run by nonprofits. So the state doesn't want to pay benefits to anybody. So they'll throw some money out to a nonprofit. The nonprofit is going to try to keep everything as lean as possible. So they're, all the programs that we, we instituted, even down to a school program that was because we had a woman in the facility that was a retired teacher and all these kids that were in there. And, and wonderful people donated materials, we were able to have school for kids even during the pandemic. Um, but that, again, this all comes from trying to revision, reimagine re this, mm -hmm. and no one's, it's, this isn't coming top down. It's not like Gavin Newsom is giving us orders or the mayor is giving us orders or city council's giving us orders. This is people wanting to create a better environment. But back to this, this situation, I'll, I'll try to be brief and, and tell me to shut up if I'm running out of time. issues with this with this abusive boyfriend and um he hits her and we get a call hey you guys gotta come over here jay this woman just got hit while 
I was, before the call came, we were stopping another guy from fighting another cat. It happens, right? There's one washing machine between 400 people. There's going to be some fights, right? So run over, talk to the guy, talk to, to the woman. She's upset, obviously. I have to take the man out of the facility and say, hey, man, he says, are you going to call the cops? He said, are you going to leave? He goes, yes. He leaves, right? So I go to the, to the young lady and we talk. She's very upset. Um, I asked her if she wanted to go into a different room for the night. She said, yes, please. And I walk her to another room where the gentleman, you know, he's already out of the facility. And I heard her break down and cry in a way I've never heard anyone break down and cry. And to, just thinking about it right now is actually making me a little bit emotional. And so she, she wanted to go back to her room. She's like, thank you for this good night. I was like, you can stay there. No, no, no. And unbeknownst to us, because hotels are not really set up for surveillance like you would think. It's more for surveillance of a parking lot. It's not for rooms. It's for privacy. Um, he, was, he was sneaking through a fence. He kept sneaking back in. And we had to open doors for people. lied to me she goes no no not at all why would you think that i was like because i opened the door for you and i saw him but she had asked me to open the door that was her way of trying to warn me without warning me right so he mm-hmm. did um eventually he he had a, he had attacked her again and eventually we had to we had to call the police Okay. All right. So let's, let me ask you, I have so many questions for you. (laughs) Okay. So I think the point you made about the lack of government involvement is a really important one because I see the same problem when it comes to building housing, Mm -hmm. right? Where I would much rather have the government be in charge of building the housing, meaning the government hires government workers, pays them really well gives them benefits, and instead of hiring a third party, instead of hiring um, a private contractor to build housing so they can pad their pockets by uh, inflating the cost of the building materials or whatever, I just think it would be much better to have the government uh, facilitate all of that. What I'm noticing, just based on the anecdote you're sharing and your personal experiences, is that you have a community coming together trying to do their best. You have a nonprofit organization trying to do its best. But we're talking about people who have all sorts of problems, issues, whatever you want to call it. They need help. It it goes beyond just putting a roof over their head, right? It could be a drug addiction. It could be uh, a domestic violence issue. Was there anyone within, you know, your team working there who had some expertise on these issues? Or was it just ordinary people coming together doing their best? I'll be honest. Not, no one wants that job. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with people that some people stay. There's maybe from when I was there, I left because of a COVID outbreak. Then it was the second one. And I had a, I had a bit of a blow up. And, and as you can imagine, you know, trying to reimagine the way that nonprofits usually do things, they don't like that. Right. So I was a bit of a thorn in the side and, and then I, and I left. 
Um, and there's only about maybe three people that are still there from when I was there. And then that, that extra facility actually went back to being a, a private hotel. And some people moved to, throughout the company to, to uh, help to continue to help people get housing um and because that's our, our, our main goal right the main goal of this this organization actually was to put people into permanent uh housing but the problem uh was that we were just kind of in a warehousing facility where we couldn't um speak to the issues that we were dealing with especially when it came to violence because the county didn't want to hear about it and the nonprofit couldn't have uh the county hearing about it because that would be detrimental to the program and the reason why i bring this up and i want to say this on air is because not to shut these things down you know we have to understand that these are the problems that are going to happen if we want to reimagine what criminal justice looks like you know, I, I, you look at a person like Chase Boudin, who I got to know kind of peripherally working with Shahid Bhutan in, in San Francisco, um, trying to reimagine the justice system, reimagine the district attorney's office and not incarcerate uh, quality of life crimes that leads people down this path. I'll try to be as brief again. I know we have a short time. Uh, one of my coworkers, I, we got a new guy. Um, that was one of these dudes that had committed a, a, a major felony, and but he was totally reformed and uh, had just was working in the nonprofit sector. And this was like another. He had two jobs in the nonprofit sector, and part of our job was to hand out food to people at, at, at lunch and dinner time. Right, so we're doing our food handout, and there was a, a unit where there was two women that had three children between the two of them in it. And one day, and their mom was there as well. One of their one of their moms was there in the facility. So it was kind of a, a, hang, a generational hangout in one of the rooms where we're handing out dinner. And the guy I'm working with looks and sees the, the what would be the grandma. He's like, "Hey, girl!" This just talks to her real casually, and he goes, "Looks at me, he's like, I talk to you." And we go into our our lobby, the communal lobby, where everybody can come talk to us. And he goes, "The daughter, I knew when she was three. And when I was doing dope and committing robberies, I was doing it with her mom and her father, and she was in the car with us. That girl had no chance. She had two children that were in the facility. She had more children out in the world. Uh, one was a 12-year-old that had stopped going to school in second grade, and one was six. We're teaching how to both teaching both how to read at around the same time. Um, with, with, with the schooling and when you understand that that's not everybody is, is in this on the same um what's the word i'm looking yeah for? i mean there's definitely the no one right exactly i mean it's not an even playing field for everyone <laughs> from the beginning right people but have it, yeah it, it's, it's infuriating it was infuriating for me to, because before i knew that i would have to deal with with her and deal with the kid. I didn't mind dealing with the kids to a certain extent. I'm a dad of four, but it would make me mad at the way she dealt with things. But finding out the story, the mm -hmm. backstory, it, it's a reminder. And what I always say is, if if homelessness doesn't frustrate you, you're not close enough to it. But yeah. you should always be walking a frustrating line of, man, I hate this, but it's. You have to have a certain level of understanding because a lot of times we otherize people. Once you're homeless, once you're mentally ill, then you're other. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. Um, so final question for you. From your experiences, obviously you noticed that there were some flaws, right? So if you had all the resources, 
and you could create a supportive system that's actually way better. It's reimagined. It's kind, humane. It does more than just put a roof over people's heads. I mean, housing is important, but clearly the, the homelessness issue is... It's so much more nuanced than that because people come from so many different stories, so many different issues, whether it be an abusive relationship or drug addiction. So what would you want to see in an ideal program or system to give folks the help they need to get their lives back on track? Uh, first and foremost, I wanted to be somewhere where people felt comfortable in the sense of they weren't on the cusp of constantly losing something for not following a certain rule or having the right paperwork. Number two, I'd want not just counselors in the facility, but the counselors also have outreach help as well because we don't want to burn people out constantly. Um, I would want there to be some sort of communal staff in the sense of uh, people can learn how to uh, cook, not just for themselves, but for everybody. So we do do things uh, communally. Um, education, that's also communal. One of the greatest things that we did was when we got to have the school, it wasn't we brought outside teachers. It was the people that taught that had lost their home for whatever reason, got to teach again. And there was something about that vibe that whenever the people would see, because I always did this things in in the space where people could see. Mm-hmm. We had the personal training, the physical therapy. We were, people had had injuries for 20 years. They couldn't move arms and, and, and legs, and they were finally able to, to get range of motion again. And, you know, even the yoga was kind of one of those things. Was like, I never thought I'd be doing yoga. So can I create a, can we create a place that's kind of like a resort? and change the way we view this instead of looking at it as warehousing a problem of 'er ne'er-do-wells. If if you want drug counseling, here it is for you. Definitely we have needles for you um, if you need it. Sharps. You know the biggest problem we had? We lost so many janitors for There was no place for people to throw away needles. And and we had a lot of people had HIV and hepatitis. And and the maintenance staff was getting needles stuck into their shoes. Holy shit. This country is in such a massive crisis. And, you know, I don't think, first of all, thank you for coming on and sharing your your experiences. Because, yeah, I think it's really easy for people to otherize and to just want to throw people away or warehouse them. But it doesn't solve the problem. Right. It's it's more than just putting a roof over people's heads. And I think that you raise a lot of interesting issues. In fact, um, hopefully we can continue the conversation at a later date. In fact, on October 23rd, you and I are going to be doing a live show with Ben Burgess um, in Los Angeles. So get your tickets uh, if you're interested. If you're in L.A. or near L.A., uh, you should come see the live show. Again, it's on October 23rd, which is on a Sunday. And I could talk about this with you uh, for the entirety of the show but unfortunately we're out of time um and everyone check out the this is revolution podcast it's hosted by jason miles and it's fantastic jason thank you for being generous with your time and coming on today thank you for having me all right we're gonna we're gonna take a brief break and uh when we come back we'll talk about uh how democratic members of congress are skirting the uh, opportunity to pass a ban on trades of individual stocks. Uh, I love that story. Don't miss it. We'll be right back. Fighting tooth and nail, I bet. Especially the Republicans. 97 of them. Heavily invested. Hi, I'm Bamboo HR. Yes. Call Congress and tell them to apply it to governors as well. Because 
Abbott of Texas, Douchey of here of Arizona, Arid Stoner, and Death Sentence of Florida. They're all heavily invested in Regeneron, which means that they're directly profiting from our death, from COVID and misery and suffering, and also medical bankruptcies, because that's the number one cause of bankruptcy in America. So call Congress, 202-224-3121. Make it apply to all public officials, not just members of Congress. Make it apply to the governors as well. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Thank you for being a member. We love and support you guys, and we couldn't be able to, we couldn't do what we do without you. All right, well, let's get to our next story. Nancy Pelosi has had months and months and months to bring this thing to a floor, to the floor. September 30th, that's when you all go on recess. You got a little over two weeks. Is there any chance Speaker Pelosi brings this thing to a vote? You can't blame Republicans on this one. I can't believe I'm saying this, but Stephanie Rule is speaking truth. And that was a conversation specifically about legislation that is meant to ban members of Congress from trading individual stocks. And this is an issue that is near and dear to my heart because while we certainly do talk a lot about how money in politics corrupts our politicians and makes them even more disconnected from the constituents they were elected to serve, the issue with them also profiting off of the very companies that they should be regulating is a huge issue that we need to address. And there's been a lot of backlash toward uh, reports that members of Congress have been trading individual stocks that they have been um, weighing in on uh, legislatively. So there are conflicts of interest there. And I also think that there is some insider trading going on. So there's been backlash in regard to that as well. Now, Stephanie Rule was speaking to a Democratic representative, a congresswoman by the name of Abigail Spanberger. And I think it's important to hear what she has to say in response to the question and statement from Rule. Hey, you guys are in charge. You guys going to do something about this? You can't blame Republicans. The young Here's what Abigail Spanberger has to say. Exclamation point. If the speaker wanted to bring it for a vote this week or this month, uh, she certainly could. Uh, and so we've seen kind of stall tactics along the way. There was going to be a committee hearing. There was. There was going to be additional legislation introduced. There, were, you know, uh, we haven't seen that. The House Administration Committee was going to take action. We haven't seen that. It's very straightforward. There are many industries, many places, many journalists who, in fact, can't uh, buy or sell individual stocks because of the potential conflict of interest depending upon uh, the, the subject matter that they cover. Yeah, and let me be clear. It's not a potential conflict of interest. It is a conflict of interest. As a legislator, it is your job to ensure that corporations aren't being abused. You're supposed to keep your constituents, the American people, safe from exploitative 
behaviors from corporations like that's part of the job it's really difficult to do that when the reason why these employers the reason why these companies and corporations are as abusive as they are to their employers is because they're always looking to cut costs associated with labor to do what maximize profits i don't think she's qualified for this high position for their shareholders they literally have a fiduciary responsibility to do just that and so if you have members of Congress invested in individual stocks, great news for the Democrats exclamation point they're gonna want to protect an employer's ability to maximize profits it is a massive conflict of interest and let me be clear about something else Look, 250 million uh, sure, I would like to see the house pass legislation fraud lawsuit against Trump organization exclamation point LOL Tish James I love you I'm in love with you. Thank you, sweetheart. With $250 million fraud lawsuit, exclamation point, LOL. Ha ha ha. They ain't gonna be able to do business in New York anymore. Ha 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 ha. Any, we have a responsibility to report in stock on stock, but I don't. I'm not familiar with that five-month. Trump and his devil spawn, John Jr., comma Eric, comma Ivanka. Are all not.
the committee we've been going back and forth and they were refining things and talking to members about what they think will work and um, we believe we have a product that we can bring to the floor this month okay so uh, a lot of excuses there but her rhetoric has softened on the issue and i i would this is my opinion I would venture to say that the reason why her rhetoric has softened is because, A, she got a lot of backlash after she said, it's the free market, we should be able to participate. And B, she knows that this is not ever going to pass unless something happens with the legislative filibuster in the Senate. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Senate is working on its own version of this legislation, which is unlikely to pass because there's no way 60 senators would vote in favor of it. But to further prove my point that Nancy Pelosi isn't really serious about wanting to pass this kind of legislation, she uh, called on Representative Lofgren, of course, another Democrat, to essentially reconcile the Senate version of the bill and the House version of the bill. And if you look at the stock activity of Lofgren and her husband, insight into the companies whose shares they reported buying or selling. And again, this is an You're listening to Young Turks so on um, banning okay, almost a hundred current uh, senators or representatives stock market speculation among Congress members stocks, either by themselves or members of their immediate call family, Congress and tell them to expand it to all government officials 202-224-3121 so going back to Abigail Spanberger and like oh it might give the appearance of a conflict of interest no it is a conflict of interest it's a massive conflict of interest and I want to provide specific examples of that okay so over the three year period that the New York Times looked at more than 3,700 trades reported by lawmakers from both parties posed potential conflicts between their public responsibilities and private finances. Almost so let's, 4, let's go ahead and look at their trades. Let's look at their trades. Trade. Okay. And by the way, this is a bipartisan issue. Trade. Okay. This is not a Donald let's attack Democrats, Trump. let's attack Republicans. It's a let's attack all of them because they're all doing it kind of situation. Okay. So Representative Alan Lowenthal's wife disclosed that she had sold Boeing shares on March 5th of 2020, which was, oh, conveniently one day before a House committee on which he sits re released damaging findings uh, on the company's handling Holy of its shit. 737 MAX wow. jet, which was, of course, involved in two fatal crashes. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Timing seems training. a little Time shady here. Could there be, number one, of course, conflict of interest, but also insider trading, which yes. if we were accused of insider trading, we would be prosecuted. Yeah. Okay. okay. And it wouldn't be by a fair. Senate ethics committee or a House ethics committee. It would be by, you know, the Federal Trade Commission. They would be investigating to see if there was any insider trading happening. Even if you're a celebrity like Martha Stewart, you engage in insider trading, you will be prosecuted, and you will spend time in prison. In this case, you have the leaders of this country, the people making decisions about critical legislation, potentially engaging in insider trading and just kind of getting away with it because they get cleared by ethics committees. Not interested. It's like the same thing that you see with police departments or specific cops who have been accused of excessive force getting investigated through an internal group of people, an internal investigation. I'm not interested in an internal investigation. I'm interested in a real investigation to see if 
there's criminality here, if there's insider trading going on. Let me continue. Dr. Deborah Malumid, the wife of Lowenthal, the Democratic lawmaker, Alan Lowenthal, bought or sold Sunrun, which installs solar energy systems in homes on 97 occasions during a years long period. During that time, Sunrun shares experienced two rallies, one at the one that began late in 2019 and extended into early 2020. Keep this timing in mind. It's important. And a second, much bigger one after a market wide uh, route caused by the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic in March. Okay. Now, in 2020, Lowenthal got real busy, okay, promoting what? Mm, Renewable energy. So, in 2020, Lowenthal, a member of the House Committee on Natural Resources and the chairman of an energy related subcommittee, was part of the bipartisan group that pushed for the inclusion of renewable energy companies in pandemic relief measures. Many of the protocols eventually passed last month as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. And guess what? That of course, is going to mean, especially if you're invested in renewable energy companies like Sunrun, you're going to profit off of it because the government has just passed policies uh, that prioritize renewables, uh, including solar energy, wind, and in this case, uh, companies that Lowenthal's wife had invested in. Now, in June of 2020, he also co-sponsored a bill to provide tax incentives for using renewable energy, uh, but that never received a vote. Now, Sunrun shares began rallying about that time. By October, they had reached what at the time was a company high of $8 per share. They cost only $9 per share when Lowenthal's wife bought those shares earlier that year. So you can understand how much of a profit they made. But again, it's not just Democrats. Republicans are involved in this uh, shady activity as well. Representative Mike Kelly's wife, Victoria Kelly, bought fifteen dollars to $50,000 worth of stock in the mining company Cleveland Cliffs just one day after Representative Kelly's office learned that the Commerce Department would initiate a tariff investigation that might benefit the company. What? Representative Kelly had lobbied Trump's administration officials for additional tariff protections, according to an ethics office report. Kelly yeah. or Kelly's purchase yeah. was the only trade she it's made in an individual stock that year, record suggests. Today. She took a nearly 300% profit when she sold eight months later. No, no, I'm sure, I'm sure it's totally innocent. I'm sure there was nothing wrong with that. Why are you so sure? Those stock trades. Don't even I'm say sure that. it had nothing to do you with, know, you know, it has uh, insider information that obviously we're not privy to. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that, you know, we're talking about an individual who gets to weigh in on policies that have impacts on the companies that he's invested in, his wife is invested in. So look, it's a necessity. It's incredibly important to pass this legislation, but we also need to be real about whether it's going to pass, how it would pass, and any Democrat who purports to be in favor of passing this legislation but fails to address the very real problem of that legislative filibuster in the Senate is full of it. Again, it's nothing more than personal marketing for their campaign purposes and nothing more. I would like to see an actual fight to get that corruption out of Congress. And so far, haven't seen much of that. All right, we got to take a break. When we come back, John Adorola will be joining us to cover stories that I missed in the first hour because we ran out of time. So we'll be back with 
conservatives losing their minds over what Lindsey Graham did yesterday in proposing a federal abortion ban. We'll be right back. This is Anna. If you're a fan of TYT, it's time for you to check out Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie. On his show, Dr. Ritchie delivers a heavy dose of fact-based truth with all of his signature passion and insight. Each day's show will feature a combination of Dr. Ritchie's penetrating analysis of the most pressing news stories, focusing on police brutality and social justice, interviews with Leaders, activists, and commentators, and even lively debates with conservatives. I support pro-democracy uh, pro podcast. So if you like this podcast, go check out another one of mine. Thank you for a billion listeners. And shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University of Arizona and KPYT. Pascal Yaki Tribal Radio. On the Rise of Trist Show. Check it and book it, man. Yo, M.A. 100.3 on your radio dial. K.P.Y. Radio. On the rise. Where show. All right. Well, I'm George Jakey Granica Spare with you guys. Uh, so we got a lot of uh, fun announcements to start with. Uh, first of all, uh, today's the same day of Member Appreciation Week. Uh, you need to panic, but uh, in order to panic, you have to first be a member and then get deep discounts, etc. On shoptyt.com. So best time to become members right now. Tyt.com/slash/join. All right. Uh, secondly, uh, tonight we got a special primary election coverage. You got Delaware, okay? Something. New Hampshire, something. Rhode Island. Rhode Island is huge, okay? Will the cooperative win? It is a trying to. It is an effort to take over the state of Rhode Island for progressives. So that's tonight. Uh, Battle Royale. Uh, we got Matt Brown, Cynthia Mendez uh, leading that fight. Uh, so 8 o'clock Eastern, uh, be right here, right after the Young Turks, that's clear. And then the third thing that happened today, uh, all of a sudden, uh, Ken Starr died. Although, to be fair, that's it. And so, Ken Starr was White House counsel. Uh, I'm sorry, not White House He did a report on, uh, on Bill Clinton, obviously, very, very famously. Uh, during it was supposed to be a lot about Whitewater, uh, and then it turned into a, a being about Monica Lewinsky, and uh, and uh, okay, it said that uh, he had sex with Monica Lewinsky, and apparently that was like a massive national crime that he yeah. had to be impeached for. Later, selling out the country <laughs> no, he, he, for the Russians, etc., turned out to be not a big deal, according to not just Republicans in general, but Ken Starr. So that hypocrite died today. Yes, so um, let me just set the story up real quick, Jink, because you kind of um, started out of nowhere, and uh, we want to make this clippable for our, uh, you know, video on demand audience. So, no, no problem, Ashwari. I see you. I see you, girl. All right. So, uh, K. 
Ken Starr unexpectedly died today. The same Ken Starr who viciously went after Bill Clinton over his sex life uh, and attempted to destroy his political career. And to be fair, there were a lot of other things that his political career could have been destroyed by. But the uh, Bill Clinton impeachment had Ken Starr, of course, front and center. Starr later went on to be a Donald Trump lackey, which uh, Jake has some more details on. So, Jake, take it away. Uh, Tell us a little more about Ken Starr. Um, and, you know, his uh, tragic yeah. passing. So uh, tragic, really tragic. Uh, so, uh, t- and, you know, look, uh, he wrote a report about Bill Clinton, and it was about Whitewater. So it was all about real estate and land in Arkansas. Oh, right, it was supposed to be about that, but it wasn't about that at all. It just turned into a report about Clinton's sex life. And then Republicans giggled. They went, <laughs> we did beat him, and beat him, sex. We got him for sex. Sex for what? Wait, what the hell? Is that a crime? He cheated on his wife. Is that a crime? Well, he lied about it. Why didn't he just admit it uh, the minute anybody asked him? Well, because that's not how affairs work. Uh, then, uh, by the way, at the end of the note of that report, the Ken Starr report, Asterix, by the way, Clinton did not do Whitewater. Oops. Okay. So that's who the Republican hypocrites are. And then I thought when Trump was getting impeached, that Ken Starr would have the decency to at least hide in a cave. I mean, given that Trump was impeached a couple of times for massive violations of democracy, uh, our form of government, uh, helping foreign countries, holding up aid to other countries so, so he can get uh, what he wants politically against his opponent. No, Ken Starr jumps in there and goes, oh, oh yeah, that's terrible. I can't believe they impeach him for that. Are you joking? Well, and so Ken Starr was a, his entire life was a giant joke. And the fact that he passed away today does not erase that at all. Anyone kissing his ass today is being ridiculous. He was a terrible person. Absolutely. I agree with you 100% on that. Uh, I don't think that someone simply passing away uh, erases the harm that they've done to both the country and to individuals who were victimized by people like, say, Jeffrey Epstein, who he served as the defense attorney for. In fact, uh, Starr's role in negotiating that deal was already public knowledge, but Miami Herald reporter Julie Brown claimed in her book, uh, Perversion of Justice, that Starr was involved in campaigning to pressure the Justice Department to drop the case. And when Epstein was initially investigated and prosecuted for his role in, uh, you know, victimizing underage girls, uh, you know, he got involved. And of course, as his defense attorney, uh, as the defense attorney for Epstein, what he did was essentially cut that sweetheart deal that got him off. Uh, and so he was able to go on to victimize other underage girls uh, through uh, the terrible stories we heard about. We know we don't need to detail yeah. them again, but that's who Ken Starr was. Yeah. So and one, one more thing on, on what a terrible, terrible person Ken Starr was. He claimed that he had all my, oh, I can't believe, I, I asked every nook and cranny of his sex life and what fetishes he had and where he actually ejaculated. Like literally that was a part of the investigation. And because I care so much about potential wrongdoing around sex. Okay. Meanwhile, Jeffrey Epstein. How can I help you? Can you give me money to help you molest little kids? Oh, I love it. I'm ready to do it. He was not a publicly appointed lawyer. He chose to represent Epstein because he's a disgusting guy. But that's not all. He then later went on to become head of Baylor University, where there was a massive controversy around the football team and sexual assault allegations against young women. And what did he do? He covered it up. 
and he had to resign in disgrace for covering it up. Because for Republicans like Ken Starr, it doesn't have anything to do with sex or something being immoral or something being wrong to do or indecent. It, everything is politics. Uh, just blame the left for everything. Blame Democrats for everything. And then behind the scenes, do it all yourself. And it help others do it. That's who Ken Starr was. He was. His legacy will be as one giant hypocrite and a disgusting individual. And death does not cure any of that. I totally agree. All right. Uh, so we just want to make that mention at the top of the show. Uh, but we have more important news to get to, including the story that we wanted to share with you yesterday, but unfortunately ran out of time. Let's talk about the nurses' strike. Long overdue, nurses. I called for uh, all medical personnel. Everybody, do a fucking national strike. Do like how France does it. They can't. They have a month off. August. All of France gets the month of August off and vacation. was an announcement made from the president of the Minnesota Nurses Association. This was an announcement on September 1st, and just yesterday, they actually followed through with their promise, and they went on strike. In fact, 15,000 nurses went on strike to advocate for themselves, and more importantly, for their patients. That's something to keep in mind, because while uh, they have multiple demands as part of this strike, really front and center of their demands is the issue involving understaffing okay so i'll give you the details on what's happening with that and how the understaffing in these hospitals is not only overworking these nurses but is negatively impacting the care that patients deserve now again fifteen thousand nurses went on strike to advocate for themselves and their patients and this is now the largest private sector nurses strike in american history so this is a huge story and before we get into the details i do want to share this tiktok video from an rn by the name of samantha ann Thrun, and uh, of course she's one of the striking nurses let's hear what she has to say So there she is uh, showing, well, not she specifically, but that was the video she posted on her TikTok page to show the uh, striking nurses and why they're striking. And uh, the strike is slated to last a few days uh, across 16 hospitals in Twin City, in the Twin Cities and Duluth. The strike is also meant to bring attention to the nurses shortage, the nurse shortages, which have been exacerbated by COVID, as you can imagine. Um, and it does 
bleed patients with COVID. inadequate care. So let's go to this first graphic, and it shows you um, some imagery of Trump the strike that's currently PPP. taking place. Strike lines are rocking across the state. This is from strike. the Minnesota Nurses Twitter page. Interestingly, the Nurses Union does say that while they, of course, would like to be paid more, compensated more for the work that they're doing, it's not the main point of the strike. Mary Turner, who's a COVID ICU nurse and president of the Minnesota Nurses Association, said that we are not on strike for our wages. We're fighting for the ability to have some say over our profession and the work-life balance. And uh, she also said, one more quote, uh, nurses do not take this decision lightly, but we are determined to take a stand at the bargaining table and on the sidewalk, if necessary, to put patients before profits in our hospitals. So, Jenk, I've got a lot more details. Um, and while some might think it's counterproductive for the nurses to strike, I actually think it's incredibly productive for them to put on blast the fact that they don't have enough nurses to provide the adequate care that the patients need. Yeah. Um, I don't know why it's counterproductive. Like, I, one of the things that bothers me is that when somebody's, uh, when a group is striking, uh, the media immediately blames the workers. Like, oh, how dare they do this? It's going to affect the patients. Well, why don't you blame the hospital for creating the conditions that led to the strike and thereby endangering the patients? Like, it's so weird the media instantly, like, there's a teacher strike. Oh, the teachers are interfering with the kids' uh, right to school. Well, it takes two to tango. The other side's not paying them not putting air conditioning in in the case of teachers. Look, in the case of the nurses, um, 37,000 less nurses in the country today than before uh, COVID pandemic started. Uh, and what it's causing is, it's causing people to do more shifts, have less support. That's happening all across the country, but apparently it is uh, quite a, acute in Minnesota where they're having this strike. And the reason, look, sometimes are there strikes that aren't justified? Yes, although one hasn't happened probably in a long, long time, right? Um, but the great majority of the time, uh, the strikes happen because they've asked and asked and asked, and management has said, "Yeah, I don't, I don't care. No, 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 I'm not going to fix it." And so this is a kind of a last ditch effort to say, "No, we're going to stand our ground." And now these strikes are spreading, whether politicians want them or not, businesses and, and hospitals and, and and even government. Uh, you know, agencies want them or not, they, well, they're coming. Sad day for you guys. Uh, and I like people taking power back. And it's not a surprise that we're talking about the largest <laughs> private sector nurses strike. And when we talk about the private sector, we have to look at how the system functions, right? If we're talking about a privatized model, we're also talking about a profit motive. And whenever there's a profit motive, there's this effort to cut costs. And so... I think that it's definitely common sense to strike if the nurses are noticing that there are some hiring decisions that are actually overburdening them because of this shortage. So I want to give you the list of demands, okay? So as I mentioned, uh, they want to address the staffing shortages they're dealing with. I should also note that some of these um, nurses units uh, go without a lead nurse, which is not good. They need a lead nurse on duty. Nurses fresh oh, out of dear. school are actually given assignments that were typically held by more experienced nurses. And nurses have increasingly been asked to take on more patients 
for bedside care to make up for the labor shortages. And so what are their demands? Uh, so they want to do something about the staffing plans. Uh, they've actually proposed a committee made up of nurses and management at each hospital so that they would determine appropriate staffing levels. Like they just want a seat at the table, which, you know, it's insane that they don't have a seat at the table considering these are decisions that impact them and their ability to provide care to patients. They want changes to shift scheduling practices. And yes, they are asking for an increase in pay, which I don't think is unreasonable given what the last two years have been like for frontline workers and nurses. Um, so they're asking for a 30% pay increase over the next three years, and they want protections against retaliation for nurses who report understaffing. Um, now, some hospitals or uh, some hospital nurses said that their shifts are often um, short, five, short about five to 10 nurses, which just think about that, guys. Like, think about whatever work environment you're dealing with. And imagine five to ten of your colleagues, co-workers, just out, gone, okay? Think about the unbelievable pressure on you to pick up the work that still needs to be done. What's up, Arthur? And so that's the issue. That's the main issue here. The Minnesota Nurses Association also recorded a 300% increase in nurses' reports of unsafe staffing levels on their shifts since 2014. So I want to be clear. This has been an ongoing issue. And when it comes to staffing shortages, you've got to keep in mind that a lot of times it is a decision that is made in order to cut costs and maximize profits. Chris Rubesh, uh, who is the vice president of the Minnesota Nurses Association and a nurse in Duluth says, I can't give my patients the care they deserve. Call lights go unanswered. Patients should only be waiting for a few seconds or minutes if they've soiled themselves or their oxygen came unplugged or they need to go to the bathroom. But but they can take uh, 10 minutes or more. Those are things that can't wait. And obviously I agree with that perspective. And one other thing I wanted to just quickly mention is anytime workers go on strike, you have to keep in mind that they're taking a risk. They're risking their livelihoods in order to fight for better working conditions, better pay. And in this case, better care for their patients. And, uh, Sometimes they don't even have a robust strike fund to make them whole financially as they're on strike. So I do want to um, encourage you guys to, if you can, contribute to the nurses strike here um, at mnnurses.org slash strike fund. That's mnnurses.org slash strike fund. Uh, I want to prove that nurses.org one of these individuals who engages in empty talk about how nurses are human. heroes you know we heard a lot about that in the beginning of covid and then turn around and do nothing to support nurses if we can if, if you have anything to spare uh, for this Please consider it. All right, and the link for that should be down below.
Nazi check. <laughs> uh, but analogically, uh, nurses don't deal with life and death situations, so it's not that important. Oh, wait, they do. Uh, if your oxygen tube gets unplugged and there's not enough nurses on staff, yeah, that's a disaster. And so, and by the way, look, this is important too. Sometimes uh, wages uh, are appropriate for an industry. But it does happen. Sometimes it happens with lawyers. It happens with bankers. So it's not impossible, right? In fact, they're overpaid. <laughs> but um, uh, so, but every time somebody goes on strike, whether it's uh, teachers or nurses, they're always apologizing. This isn't mainly about wages. Is it? No, it's okay. It can be about wages if you're getting underpaid. Yeah, that's for higher wages. And say it's about wages. There's nothing wrong with that. And uh, last night on Old School, one of our shows, tyt.com slash join, become a member, get all of our shows. We were talking about it. In fact, one of our members suggested 
Uh, you know, the nurses' union is kind of an ideal union because a lot of the unions are too weak. Uh, like the teachers' union didn't even support the last teacher strike in Ohio. It was unbelievable, right? The NEA did. Um, and and, the, hey, and the workers at Starbucks and Amazon have to go around the traditional unions to even strike to get to do all the things that they're doing. And sometimes the unions are too strong, like the cop unions, where they say, no, 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 we don't want any accountability, etc. right? Nurses' union is just right and has been for a long time. So I love the strike. Keep it going. Stay strong. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take our first break of the show. When we come back, uh, we're going to go to a segment featuring Glenn Greenwald on Tucker Carlson's show, where he believes that uh, it's Biden, not Trump supporters or Trump himself, who poses an authoritarian threat to this country, which is laughable to say the least. We'll get into that segment, we'll dissect it, and then we'll give you the facts. Come right back. Oh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. To the Chisel the Governor Show. Politics AF, Art AF, Comedy AF, and Music AF. If you like this podcast, go check out my other ones, man. They're pretty groovy as well. Shout out to KAMP. Let's do it. Let's well, as we know, Donald Trump is facing not one but multiple investigations. Uh, And one of those investigations has to do with his attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election and his uh, part in inciting riots in the nation's capital on January 6th. Now, we have some updates in regard to how the DOJ, under the leadership of Merrick Garland, is approaching this. Still no charges for Donald Trump, but we do now know that dozens of Trump's associates have been subpoenaed by the Justice Department over their alleged involvement in uh, attempting to overturn the results of the 2020 election. So more than 30 individuals, according to reporting, and while we literally have about 30% of the country saying that they are willing to use violence in order to win the country back, while we have stories of people trying to undo our democratic process, Glenn Greenwald believes that the real authoritarian threat to America is Joe Biden, and he said as much during an interview with Tucker Carlson. Let's watch. What is the most overlooked part of the Biden administration is that before January 6th, there was an attempt to import that war on terror, that first war on terror, onto domestic soil. Adam Schiff, one of the most authoritarian members of Congress, in addition to being one of the most pathological liars, had legislation pending that would do nothing but take that first war on terror and make it domestic. And you can look at a Wall Street Journal article on November 15th, two months before January 6th, right when Biden was declared the winner, where they said that a top priority of the Biden administration is to reintroduce the war on terror, but this time on domestic soil. So they justify it now in the wake of 1-6, even though before 1-6, this was what they were intending to do as a way of criminalizing their opposition and solidifying authoritarian powers on American soil. So this is a continuation of the right-wing outrage over Biden referring to Trump supporters as semi-fascists. I wish he just said what the reality is. Just say fascists. They're going to attack you no matter what. But also, just to clarify what this conversation is really about, the attempts to do something about the very real problem of right-wing extremism within our borders. 
And that right-wing extremism has played out in incredibly violent ways, including mass shootings, like the one in El Paso, Texas, that was inspired and motivated by anti-immigrant sentiment. You also had the the conspiracy theorists who believed in right white replacement theory shooting up a grocery store in Buffalo. And those are some of the more prominent examples. But we've seen other examples of right-wing extremists and right-wing militias carrying out acts of violence uh, against their political opponents across the country. But according to Glenn Greenwald, that should all be ignored, okay? Because doing anything about it would be authoritarian. Okay. Yeah. All right. So there's so much uh, to dissect here. Uh, so first of all, um, so trying to lead a coup with literally fake electors, and that was the word used in one of the emails. Let's get fake electors instead of the real electors that the American people selected through our democracy. That is not authoritarianism. We're trying to overthrow our democracy. It's not authoritarianism, according to Glenn Greenwald, because he's now getting paid by the right wing. Uh, so, but Joe Biden saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't allow these guys to do massive violence within the country is somehow authoritarianism. Now, look, if you've got specifics, Glenn, okay, for example, th- this is why Glenn turning into a sellout clown uh, that goes and dances on Fox News is so disgusting because in the pr- past, he did great reporting. So you, you got warless wiretapping. Right. <clears throat> right now, I'm um, uh, sending this TikTok to all the young Democrat groups I can for 15 of them. Actually, what I should do is uh, also like um, record it on this device, and so I have. Oh yeah, I can do that. I could just like Okay. So yes, they literally did everything in their power they could to literally torture two hundred fifty million.
Okay. Okay. So now I'm editing in text sweaters. Should not. Your stunt. Uh, go back to comment. It's flagging it. I didn't. Uh, I did AF.
The last word, edit comments. Harvard's doesn't allow themselves to be mentioned. I think I should change my mining inspector username. Can I change my username? Just a four. Great, so I just changed it. It's Trista for AZ Mine Inspector now on, on Instagram. <laughs> All right. Backwards, backwards. Amen. Okay, you guys still there? What am I doing? Just a little bit. Green, yes, so I don't know why. What? Johnny Depp. Holy shit. Johnny Depp followed me, but he says, um, Love. Thank you for saying hello to me. Hi, my sweetheart. I love you too. Oh, how are you doing, sweetie? Holy shit, you're so nice to me. Oh, I love you too, my sweetheart. Mm. Mm. Yes, you're fucking 
adorable, I adore you. Yes, I do. Come on. Oh, uh oh. Shit. <laughs> Hi, my sweetie pie. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, good morning, doggie. Good morning, Dr. Baker. How are you doing, puppy dog? Good morning. Good morning. Did you turn off the fire? Shit. I'm gonna tweet that. Oh, so that was an ASMR, by the way. Sounds of a barnyard or whatever. And uh, um, petting a dog. You like the sound of petting a dog and loving on a dog. Especially a lovely puppy. Like Dr. B. Dr. B in his wellness center. This is. Um, Broadcasting from Dr. B's healing 
wellness, wellness center. Hey, get out from there! Hey, motherfuckers! <laughs> they were scatter like chickens. Scatter like pigeons. How are you guys doing, man? Got some babies. How you doing, boy? I got a, I got a down chicken. He was on his back yesterday in the, in the courtyard. He, it looks like he got, I don't know, like, maybe, it, it looked like he had a wound scrape on his shoulder. And he was on his, he's on his back. And couldn't turn over. Hi, babies. So he made it through the night and he's, he's alive. Hi, sweetheart. Hi, sweetheart, baby doll. You okay? Shit, I hope you get better soon, sweetheart. Okay. She appreciates it. I know. I can feel it. If he survives, he'll be the most, the most loving chicken. <laughs> right, buddy? You're gonna be my personal boy, my home chicken now. If you survive this shit, what happened, sweetheart? I think, I think uh, that there's a shelf, something that fell on him. Hi, Henry. This is Henry. He's my peacock baby. Baby peacock. Oh my gosh. Think it's a boy. Are you a? You're a boy, right? My beauty. Yes, I need some more female peahens. R.I.P. Magic. Sorry, Magic. Spirit of Magic. Spirit of Magic. My bad magic should have should have been more protective and careful. But anyway, so let's get back to our um, news, news cycle. I covered pro yeah on my turd on the back of my chair. Turd on the back of my chair. That's the downsides. But you know what? It's, it's a small thing. You can sweep anyway, right? You can sweep and wipe the dust down. Dust. Um, so you might as well pick up some turds and... <laughs> Well, not pick them up. 
just wipe them into uh, something else and throw them in the garden. Fertilizer right there. Best fertilizer possible. Hi, Metatron. What's wrong, baby girl? Huh? You want you want some assistance, my sweethearts? How are you doing, my sweetheart? Yes, you're very beautiful. I love you. How you doing, huh? Hmm? How you doing, sweetie pie? Good morning, sweetie. Okie doke. Um, and actually, I wanted to, to go full bye bye before it gets too hot. Put some shades on. Okay, come on, just so let's get back to the show. Let's get back to the action, man. Well, yeah, just so on on um, Instagram, I'm Trista for AZ Mine Inspector. Okay, it looks good. Just, uh, I'm just, uh, I'm just like checking my bio. It says uh, Politics AF podcast. Write in Trista for State Mine Inspector Arizona. Please write me in Trista Blue Wave. November baby. Cal Oxford TMU Honors Award winning educator. MMJ Senate 2024 Future POTUS. www.tristaforchange.com. <laughs> That's what I think about. Fuck face Nazi Trump. Lock him up. Do your job as an American. Call the call the doge. Say every second he's not behind bars. You're in, you're allowing him to incite more uh, violence and hatred, racial hatreds, and uh, blame him for the serial shootings in all the schools. The Young Turks, nurses striking, comma, mm. all right, okay, dope. So let's, uh Welcome back, and um, tune back, tune in if you want to hear some more pro democracy podcasts. This is the Christopher Governator Show, and shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University of Abbotstone, KPYT Pasquale Tribal Radio on the Res, the Trista Show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, Fox News Live, Israel's Prime Minister, blah, blah, blah. Um, nah. 